This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is brought to you by Ansvar. Ansvar protects over 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are talking about sharing through Covid. Um, but first, we do have a slight update from last week. Uh, so we should explain that we record on a Wednesday for release on a Friday. And it turns out that three days is a long time in charities. Or it certainly can be sometimes. Yes, last week we mentioned the situation with Oxfam, that fresh complaints about the charity's culture and practices had surfaced and the Charity Commission had said it was aware of these issues. Now, at the time we recorded, Oxfam's ability to bid for UK aid funding, which was suspended when the original safeguarding scandal broke in 2018, had just been reinstated. The day after we recorded, the government then revoked the charity's right to bid, less than a month after it had been reinstated. Announcing the move, a Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office spokesperson said that all organisations bidding for UK aid must meet the high standards of safeguarding required to keep the people they work with safe. Given the most recent reports, which call into question Oxfam's ability to meet those standards, we will not consider any new funding to Oxfam until the issues have been resolved. So an Oxfam spokesperson has said that the charity is aware of the FCDO statement and is seeking further information. They've also said that the charity has notified the Charity Commission and the FCDO and will keep them informed as the investigation into the new allegations conclude. So yeah, that's a massive blow for Oxfam. Um, Let's hope they manage to get these issues resolved and get back on track. As we said, it does seem that they have made some real progress, but clearly there are still things that need to be sorted. So hopefully with this week's subject, we're going to be on safer ground. Um, The situation is unlikely to develop that quickly, um, even though we're recording it a day earlier than usual, because I have the day off tomorrow and I'm going to spend the day sitting outside a pub because it is 2021. Yay. And that is a much more classy thing to say in a professional context than it would have been a couple of years ago. What are you going to order in the pub? I don't know. I don't know. You haven't thought about it? Your first order? Hmm. It's definitely, definitely like whatever they've got on tap, you know? Um, I I would not have said at the beginning of this year that I was particularly fussed about having kind of, you know, draft beer or whatever. Actually, I have missed it. So, yeah, it's probably going to be something along those lines. Yeah, and then just, you know, food where I don't have to do the washing up. I'm quite excited about as well. Scotch eggs, famously. So it's all about the Scotch eggs. I don't think they do veggie ones, though, I'm veggie. Ah, I'm sure we can find a veggie Scotch egg for you somewhere. You can get the corn mini ones. They're amazing. Um, I don't know if other brands are available. Other brands may be available, but I know the corn ones did make me very, very happy. This is a fun fact about me. I have never, ever had a Scotch egg. I don't know what they taste like. I have no frame of reference okay. for the Scotch egg experience. To, to dig into that, um, how? And then follow up question, has it become like a conscious choice? Like... <laughs> um, I don't like boiled eggs. Okay. Uh, they 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 freak me out a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah, and and so the idea of just a boiled egg wrapped in ham or bacon, and then having breadcrumbs or whatever it is—is is it battered? No, it's breadcrumbs, isn't it? Breadcrumbs, yeah. It's just I don't know. I think 
at a young age, I just looked at them and thought, you know what, it's not for me. But we don't need to go into my strange culinary habits any further. On this, let's talk about some charity stuff. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about some charity stuff. A recent survey by the Association of Chairs has found that almost two thirds, 62% of chairs have reported spending four or more days a month on their chairing role during the COVID-19 crisis. This is a jump up from about 43% before the pandemic. And 18% of chairs have said that they spent more than 11 days a month on chairing, compared with 10% before the pandemic. So we're seeing big jumps um, in the amount of time that is being spent on charity chairing at the moment. The research surveyed a total of 710 charity chairs in November last year for the report Chairing Through COVID Above and Beyond. And in a few cases, this time commitment went even further, with one respondent saying that establishing a COVID safety plan, staffing problems and recruitment had kept them working on their chairing role more than 40 hours a week. Another respondent said that they had actually stepped down from a paid position to give them more time to focus on chairing. Now, in normal times, the level of commitment that you would expect from a charity chair varies, but it's generally around one day a month, give or take. So why were they spending so much extra time on their chairing role? Rebecca, this was your story. It was. Um, well, the survey found that the most common reason for the increase in time dedicated to the role was that staff and particularly the chief executive needed additional support. And that was the reason given by 32% of chairs. Not exactly surprising. Not exactly surprising. Yeah, the, the, the support has to come from somewhere and it's just going up the line within the charity. And that, that makes total sense. And, you know, it's part of what the chair is there for. But it does seem that, it you know, it's it's staff that never needed support before are suddenly needing it. Other common reasons included additional time spent in meetings, including more frequent board meetings, which was highlighted by 25% of respondents. And time taken up by COVID-related funding concerns and crisis management, cited by 24%. And obviously, we know a lot of charities have had those funding concerns. So again, not really a huge surprise. And it's not just the time commitment that was the issue. The survey found they were being asked to make some really tough and complex decisions, as you might expect for an organisation in crisis. In some instances, they had to cut or completely reconfigure services, furlough or lay off staff and even increase support for service users while at the same time reducing resources. And that's, yeah, that's a tough decision load. It's a tough emotional load. Yeah. So, And as we all know, the decision making process has become more difficult with boards having to meet online and, you know, in some cases, review their governing documents to even allow them to meet virtually. Um, there has actually had to be a temporary change in the law to allow that to happen because a lot of charities, their governing documents were made you know, a long written so far back in the past that you know, we weren't using video calling regularly and, and they kind of specified they had to meet in person. During this period, some chairs have overseen the most challenging decisions that organisations have ever faced, often making decisions at speed and sometimes with limited information. I have to say it all sounds extraordinarily stressful and we know how stressful this entire year has been for the charity sector as a whole, but particularly doing this, and I know you're going to speak to this later, but just to briefly say like on a voluntary basis um and 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 something that you wouldn't normally actually be spending that much time on to be going in at this kind of depth must have been enormously challenging yeah and this person taking like giving up paid roles or spending 40 hours a week that's clearly got to be an exception you know that's that's Mm. not normal but that's that's astonishing. Like for that one person, that's that's really tough. There, there are some interesting bright spots in this research, though, um, with many chairs saying that they did find this period really motivating, despite all of these additional pressures. Um, so in fact, 
Almost half of the chairs who were surveyed, 44% of chairs, said their levels of motivation increased compared with 13% whose motivation decreased. One factor that was really important to this rise was where the board and staff were supporting each other and working more closely together. One respondent went as far as saying that the crisis had helped to foster a wartime mentality within their organisation with everyone supporting each other. And you know, another described it as challenging and exciting. They said, we've learned a great deal and we've come through COVID stronger and wiser, if a little poorer, the respondent said. The closer the chair felt to the others in the organisation, the more motivated they felt. But worryingly, it was clear from some of the people who participated in the survey that the pressure of taking tough decisions in tough circumstances was becoming too much. Some talked about their concerns of dealing with stress and their fears about burnout, which we all recognise again from paid employment. And clearly that is also a risk, even if you're not getting paid. Absolutely. And I can, you know, I can see the 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 angle about finding this period rewarding in a strange way Mm. um you know coming on as as the editor of third sector in march last year um so so much of it has just been absolutely horrendous but at the same time i've had lots of people saying you know this is going to be an experience starting in this role that you will you'll never have anything like this again and it's it's new challenges and it's teaching you to work in in new ways i mean it was you know baptism of fire is Mm. the only way to really speak about it but there will be kind of good learnings that have come out of that as well but the burnout risk is immense absolutely immense So almost half of the chairs who were surveyed said that board relationships had improved since the pandemic, which I think is really interesting because I I definitely think on third sector as a team, we've all really kind of banded together, haven't we? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, I hope I hope that we have. And several chairs said that, you know, the pandemic had actually given the board the opportunity to work together more closely, which it would do if you were handling big crisis situations like this. Um, Others cited the arrival of new trustees as a reason for improved relations as well. And it's been broadly good news for chief executive relationships. 41% of chairs who worked with the chief executive said that the working relationship had improved. And just 8% said that the relationship had actually worsened. The 14% of surveyed chairs who said their relationships with their boards had become worse mostly blamed the use of tech, um, saying that it led to challenges in maintaining strong relationships when most of the engagement was happening online. I think that's something that we can all identify with on some level. We're all sick to the back teeth of Zoom. Um, And you can't connect with people in the same way over screens. And particularly people like if you're only meeting them once a month, you know, I think you you were saying about this sort of wartime mentality in the third sector team, you know, with the exception of Stephen, who has done an amazing job just fitting into a team. And who you've still never met in person. I've never met him in person, nope. Um, Yeah, it's it's a real challenge when you don't already have those established relationships. I think you can you can strengthen those relationships meeting by video but to develop them i think when you can't read people's body language and you're sort of trying not to talk over each other and all of the things from zoom that mm. is tough as we said there were some who felt demotivated by this um and they cited uh, a lack of support from the government the charity commission or elsewhere for the charity sector at this time as well as just dealing with all of the changes that have happened one respondent new to the third sector said the pandemic had highlighted the sector's dysfunctional funding arrangements and a dysfunctional legal structure, which in their view hinder efficient and sensibly accountable delivery of benefit. Hmm. Coming straight in with the feedback. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is, I mean, tough, but difficult to find it unfair. Um, so yeah, what's the solution? Well, the Association of Chairs concluded, essentially, it's a lot of support. Yeah. That was pretty much their conclusion. Um, 
The report urges chairs spending significant time on their roles to take care of their own well-being and seek out support from colleagues, other chairs and organisations such as the Association of Chairs. It also encouraged them to invest in building constructive relationships with their chief executive and other board members. For trustees, it said the support they could offer ranged from simply being committed, engaged and reliable board members to being more proactive in finding ways to support the chair by taking on additional tasks and working to enhance relationships within the board and beyond. Yeah, and the researchers also urged chief executives to do their bit in signposting chairs to sources of support um, and, where appropriate, creating a budget for either developing or accessing that support. And the recommendations stress charities should not expect chairs to pay for that themselves. I thought that was so important. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, for funders, including the government, the report has called for flexible funding, especially core or unrestricted funding, as boring as you may find it, core unrestricted funding important uh, and for funders to increase their commitment to governance costs and support for those key volunteers i mean that comes up so often for so like like it i'm, I'm always suspicious of something that, that seems to be a panacea but it really does seem that actually with more core funding more unrestricted funding a lot of the problems that charities come up against would not have been magically solved overnight but they would be in a position to solve them um and, and to begin solving them to begin working on them and i just think that that it's, and I think we are starting to hear from more funders who are who are hearing that message. Um, you know, there are organisations like, you know, the Lloyds Bank Foundation does a lot of it, smaller charities. But I think in the wake of the pandemic and some of the ways that funders have been working in the pandemic, we've been hearing more from funders who are saying, yeah, we're going to start doing that. So hopefully we might see some of the benefits here as well. Ultimately, the research says that it is likely we will see people quitting as chairs as we emerge from the pandemic. What did you make of that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's realistic. I think, you know, you will see people and, it, you know, we keep saying this is voluntary. People have other things going on in their lives. And, you know, the last year or so mm. has been incredibly tough on everybody. And I think there are going to be people who just go, this is one extra thing I can't give brain space to. I don't have the energy for anymore. So obviously I was speaking to Ros Oakley, who's the chief executive of the Association of Chairs for this piece in the magazine. Um, and yeah, she was saying, I think we probably are going to lose people and that's a real shame. But, you know, also we are seeing all these people who've been really committed. And as you were saying, you've had this baptism of fire who've gained these skills. Um, so yeah, there there is a balance there, but I, you know, I, I think, I think, realistically yeah we're going to lose people one thing that Roz said to me um it, that really struck me was that time and again what we hear from chairs and it's one of the reasons they set up the association of chairs in the first place is that being a chair is an incredibly lonely role um and it's the sort of thing like we hear you know it's, it's a cliche you know it's lonely at the top and the loneliness of leadership is really well acknowledged i think in relation to the chief executive role but perhaps the isolation and the challenges of leading in a voluntary capacity are much less recognised. Uh, Ross pointed out that what comes through in the report is that a lot of the traditional stuff around governance has been process driven rather than about the soft side, about relationship building. That it's all been about how do you do this? How do you hold a meeting? What should you be doing? What is your role? What are the technical and legal requirements? What are you liable for? But not, you know, yeah, about the bits that are the chair's role to kind of bring the charity together and to lead it, you know, and to, and to lead a group of trustees to lead this charity. 
So she says without, so Ross says without additional support, there's a danger we'll get chairs who are overtired and demoralised and you'll get a downward spiral. And the other interesting point that she made is that it's worth remembering that for people who are getting paid for what they're doing in the charity sector, there's actually often a lot more support available. We're aware of kind of, you know, career development opportunities, things like that. Chairs are taking on so much voluntarily, the least we can do is provide a bit more support. And, you know, that seems absolutely right. We've touched on this before, but yet the responsibility involved in chairing, even at normal times, is enormous. And it's all voluntary, sometimes on top of paid work. And that's that's kind of terrifying. And we really need to be doing everything we can to support chairs and to help them support the charities they look after. Um, so hopefully we're going to be seeing more of that. Um, and yeah, if, if you're a chair listening to this or if you know if you know of chairs that would like more support... Um, I think the best thing we can recommend is to visit the Association of Chairs website, which is associationofchairs.org.uk. They have resources and information. They run some really useful events. And I, yeah, those, those events, I believe, are open to non-members as well. And yeah, I'd also say take a quick look at the Charity Commission's Essential Trustee, which is their CC3 guidance, if you haven't already. That probably is much more around these kind of yeah, these sort of structural skills that we were talking about rather than the soft skills. But yeah, if you haven't looked at it already, I absolutely would recommend um, giving it a glance. This report was the subject of a feature in the latest edition of the Third Sector magazine, which should be hitting doorsteps around about now as this podcast goes out um, and will be available on our website, thirdsector.co.uk, very shortly. So have a look for it in the magazine or visit our website for more information. Hey, guess what, Rebecca? Oh, I don't know. This is this is very open. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. What? Tell me. It could be anything. But it is, in fact, that we have launched a special subscription offer for the listeners of the Third Sector podcast. Ooh, that's nice. It is nice. I like it a lot. So listeners mm. <laughs> who sign up to Third Sector's The Information Package can now get 50% off the first three months of their subscription when they pay by quarterly direct debit. All they need to do is go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to get involved. And when you do that, you will gain access to our brilliant magazine, unlimited news stories, high value sector analysis, and of course, lots more views and opinions from myself and yourself. Which, you know, if you're listening to the Third Sector podcast, clearly you're not adverse to. You're you're okay with it at the very least, if not actively enjoying it. Uh, So where do they need to go to get that again? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Rebecca. Um, They need to go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to sign up today. Each week, we bring you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. Um, And what do we have this week? So, uh, as well as pubs reopening, charity shops are reopening. Yay! So non-essential shops, which include charity shops, are going to be able to reopen uh, from last Monday, just gone. I've seen so many excited tweets about the charity shops. Yeah, I have a whole box of stuff to take to a charity shop and I know that it's going to go in and then I'm probably going to come back with a, you know, a similar level of... The same box. Yeah, same box <laughs> with different stuff in it, um, which is it's fine. And, and some money will be raised for charity in the meantime, um, which is great. Awesome. Um, so the Charity Retail Association has released some new guidance, um, sort of updated guidance, some of the issues around... Um, storing stuff for sort of 48 hours or having it in isolation i think they've decided actually that's not 
as useful as, as it was thought to be. Um, so they've kind of updated that guidance, but they're looking at the precautions that you do need to take to make charity shops COVID safe. So I would uh, suggest checking that out uh, on the Association of Charity Retailers. Charity shops are expecting to do very well, they're expecting a bit of a deluge. They're expecting, um, yeah, floods of donations, plus people who, like me, who can't wait to get back in there. So uh, hopefully this should, yeah, provide charities with a bit of a boost. Hopefully they reopen safely and very successfully. Yes. Our next story. This is the leading youth homelessness charity Centrepoint has launched a new strategy which is setting out to end youth homelessness by 2037. So the idea between this ambitious aim is that no child born this year will face homelessness when they turn 16, thereby ending homelessness for the next generation. According to Centrepoint's Youth Homelessness Data Bank, more than 120,000 young people aged 16 to 25 faced homelessness in 2019-2020. So that's it's pretty stark. That's a huge, huge number of, of young people. This strategy, Change the Story, Ending Youth Homelessness Altogether strategy, launched this week. And it acknowledges that the threat of homelessness can never be fully removed for young people due to the life events that cause it. You can't monitor people's lives in quite that way. But, Centrepoint argues, the number of young people facing a housing crisis can be reduced to a negligible number by improving prevention interventions and by making changes to employment, housing and welfare legislation. Then, a safe and stable place to live can immediately be provided for the reduced number of young people who still find themselves homeless. Finally, to end cycles of repeated homelessness, the charity also wants to see those accessing this accommodation being supported into a permanent home as soon as they are ready to live independently. Obviously, yeah, it's brilliant. It's a really interesting, well thought through plan. Um, Obviously, there are enormous challenges around this ambition, even before the pandemic, around lack of resources, affordable housing, rising youth unemployment. And Centrepoint acknowledges that the scale of the task is beyond any organisation operating alone, which I think is what is really brilliant about this strategy. To deal with these challenges, the charity has pledged to innovate its services, share its insights into what works freely and expand its partnerships across society in order to bring about the change it wants to see. So working with other charities, making all that information available, making their insights available, working collaboratively rather than competitively. And I think that's such an important and it's a theme we've seen again and again as a result of the pandemic, you know, becoming much more attainable. So Robert Cade, Centrepoint's Director of Strategy and Performance and the strategy's co-author, says the strategy represents an ambitious but achievable vision to prevent the vast majority of vulnerable young people becoming homeless and to immediately support those who do so they are able to leave it behind completely. That's brilliant. He pointed out that the success of the Everyone In campaign, so where essentially everyone who was homeless was moved off the streets at the beginning of the pandemic, confirmed that ending homelessness is achievable with the right levels of resource and will. But that legacy is meaningless without lasting change. He says this strategy can help them to realise that change through working together across society to end youth homelessness altogether. And I think this is just great. Um, Probably the reason this story got to me is that I've been really struggling to look forward to things and to plan things in the future. I think we've had a year of just plans being postponed and cancelled. And I just have really struggled to kind of think about, you know, what's next year, what's life going to look like. 
And just having this really big, ambitious plan for the future just seems like the combination of optimism and courage that I've been really, really craving. The last year or so has been so difficult. And so actually grabbing some of the positives of it, trying to use them to create lasting change, both in terms of outcomes and in the ways charities are working is brilliant and inspiring. And I think it's exactly what the sector needs. And I think it's an incredible example of what the sector is capable of at its heart when it's doing its best. Big snap to centre point. That's all from us. Uh, We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.